Welcome to Galaxy Forum. I'm your host, Melissa Kaplan, and we're here to explore the creativity happening in the LCC galaxy, in our classrooms and on campus, and connecting the work of our stars with our community. We're talking about infrastructure today. Big picture for Michigan, local picture for Lansing Community College. I am very pleased to welcome my guests, Representative Alyssa Slotkin, Michigan's 8th District Congresswoman. Thank you so much for making the time to join us. Of course. Happy to be here. And Kathy Willem, Dean of Technical Careers at Lansing Community College. Thank you. You're welcome. So depending on who you're talking to, the word infrastructure doesn't always inspire thoughts of creativity, yet the fields that support it and the work done to get it funded These things require vision, ingenuity, and resourcefulness, a lot of creativity. Last November, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was signed into law, and Representative Slotkin, you were instrumental in leading the bipartisan coalition that worked for its passage in Congress. I understand that it totals over a trillion dollars with more than $10 billion for Michigan. What does that mean for our state? Yeah, um, well, I certainly helped lead it. We had a bipartisan group uh, that came together and came up with the skeleton of the agreement, and that's kind of what made it through. I I mean, to be honest, this amount of money is just more than any person living has seen come in for infrastructure since we built the national highway system back in World War II. I mean, it's just um, a significant amount of money, and that's because in Michigan and all across the country, we had just so underinvested in keeping up our infrastructure you know, our roads, our bridges, our tunnels, sure, but lots of other things that we needed this sort of serious capital investment. So it's going to be dropped in the bank accounts of the state of Michigan, hopefully here in early summer. Um, And uh, and then it'll be up to the state to make a plan to spend it. But it means we can do just major upgrades to, again, not just roads and bridges, but think water infrastructure. Think broadband internet from the farthest corners of the UP to every single rural home in the state. It just is transformative on what it can do um, and the strategic projects that you can do when you have that, that amount of money coming in at the same time. So what are some of the ways that you expect this to impact mid-Michigan, um, the area that's served by Lansing Community College? Well, it's a bunch of things. I mean, I think um, first and foremost, um, we all talk about, our, you know, fixing fixing the darn roads. Uh, we talk about, um, you know, how terrible our infrastructure is compared to other states. And all you have to do is drive to Ohio, where the roads just smooth out the minute you cross the, the border, which no Michigander, no self-respecting Michigander likes. Um, so certainly people are going to start to see that in their neighborhood. But, you know, I, I think about what broadband Internet would do in every corner of Michigan, right? I mean, think about how kids did not have access to the internet when we started this pandemic. Oh, yeah. Uh, Think about how so many of them literally had to go to, like, the parking lot of their school or a a Taco Bell in order to be able to do their schoolwork. But then our businesses. I mean, COVID has changed for a lot of people how we do work, and we want to attract that next generation of businesses and make sure they thrive in Michigan. They just need broadband. There is no such thing as a community getting big investment from a, of a local business without broadband. So it, it's just, uh, uh, you know, going to allow some really, I think, major things. And then, frankly, there's a whole what we call resilience angle. So last summer, how many times did our power go out? How many times did our uh, communities 
flood just in one season. And we need to expect that we're going to have more storms. They're going to be more serious. And our power grid, you know, people are plugging in more devices than ever in history. So we need to upgrade our, our power grid. There's just big transformative things that we need to do. Um, and infrastructure supports all of that. Transformative is is definitely the word, and it it uh, you know the the thought that infrastructure is one thing, uh, and and like you said the the roads certainly people that needs to be fixed. It's it, it affects everybody who has a car, and in Michigan that's you know a whole lot of us. But just talking with you, Dean Willem, um, about the perception of infrastructure and what infrastructure really, really entails, which is a lot of innovative, advanced technologies. Uh, and LCC has, in your division, the Technical Careers Division, more than a dozen programs, and a lot of those are leading to work in infrastructure. Um, tell us about some of those programs. Well, absolutely. I think, you know, when you say infrastructure, people immediately think of like the roads and the railroads and planes and things on those lines. But when they recently had the announcement about the uh, ion lithium battery plant here just a mile or two down the road from where we're at, and they think of that as in cars. But in my mind, I was thinking homes like like Representative Slotkin just mentioned, you know, the whole thing about the power grid and, and more homes are being wired. You're going to have to take those home from 100 amp to 150 amp to to prepare them for charging of an electric vehicle. You're looking at what is that going to take instead of uh, gas stations necessarily. How are we going to have that infrastructure in place at our homes, at our businesses, at the schools for those vehicles? Um, this this is just an example. Utilities. Right now, we know that we have we talk about the line worker program. Well, we're looking at what are we doing with underground splicing. Our large cities, you know, Lansing area, they're going to underground splicing. You don't see poles up in the cities anymore. And so what does that infrastructure look like? And how are we working with our, our companies that we work with to prepare our students for that? So there's, I totally agree with the representative saying there is a lot going on outside of what people think of in the terms of infrastructure. Right. And and so I know the there's at least half a dozen programs that are specifically geared toward that. Dean Willem in our, our technical careers, um, things like the developing cybersecurity, mm-hmm. um, advanced manufacturing. Can you tell us, you know, about a couple of those and, and uh, the curriculum and how students are learning so the equipment that we have? I know we've got some pretty marvelous resources and, um, you know, that, that give people incredible hands-on experience. Absolutely. And, and currently we have a, a grant through an H-1B grant from in, Industry Infinity Grant in which we are writing brand new cybersecurity curriculum that is not just what people think for the computer information technology programs, but it's also for advanced manufacturing. And think about electric and autonomous vehicles and how you need to secure that those that network and that programming and, and things along those lines. So we're tying it into those areas as well. And as far as advanced manufacturing, I, I the, the equipment is just amazing. I have a new piece of equipment in my welding lab right now. It's a cobot. You just have to touch it and tell it where to go. You know, you move the arm, and then it does all the work. The technologies are changing so rapidly. And when you think about cybersecurity, you've got to make sure that you have a network that's secure so that it you don't want anyone hacking in your production line and shutting it down and things on those lines. So, again, that is, a, you're right, another aspect of the infrastructure work that needs to be done that 
is not seen, but really has a huge impact on productivity. I'm curious how, uh, you know, how new are these programs and what other programs are in the pipeline? Oh, my gosh. This is uh, new. Um, our cybersecurity, we, we're, we will be introducing all the new curriculum this fall. We also have another new program that we are introducing this fall that has been approved, and that is drone, drone technology and maintenance. So we are working right now. Um, it's part of our, through our, our computer information technology and our aviation pro- programs, but it will be directed, our first one is going to be directed towards our fire academy and fire science program because we want to uh, show our, our, we have a fire academy. So what we want to do is make sure that our students are learning how to use drones to identify sources of fire. Is it safe to go in? Things along those lines. We're going to also tie those drones into our utilities. And we're also going to tie it into our police academy. And we're tying it into construction management and architecture and all those other areas. So they're all going to be, in fact, we want to even tie it into one of your areas, Melissa, with uh, your uh, digital marketing component. So there, there's a lot of different, nothing is in silos anymore. We work across not just within our division, but across other divisions. And our industry partners are coming across, they'll, they'll have different components that don't, don't tie just into welding. They're tying into networking. They're tying into the whole uh, architecture. When you think of building a new home, we're not talking about wood and, and uh, some of the materials that we're comfortable with. There's new materials coming out. There's new uh, developments going on right now. So even that infrastructure and construction management is taking a different shape. That's an extremely exciting. And um, like I said at the beginning, people, I think uh, a lot of people who don't realize, don't realize just how creative the work in infrastructure is. And, um, you know, I, I know that a, I understand, I believe a part of the, the law uh, relates to jobs and relates to uh, wage provisions. And Representative Slotkin, could you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that was really important to us when we were crafting this bill is, you know, we all talk about jobs, but we we really need to be talking about jobs, like careers and jobs for a lifetime, well-paid jobs, because it, it, it doesn't make sense for someone to have to work two or three jobs just to pay their bills. So we put in specific provisions that would ensure that if you're going to be spending federal infrastructure dollars, you're going to be um, paying a living wage. Someone someone can work 40 hours a week and not have to work three jobs and have benefits and have a career and have the dignity that comes with that work. Um, so we wrote that specifically into the bill, and I think it helps ensure that we don't have a ton of federal money that where everyone's kind of underbidding each other um, and, and just not paying people what they're worth. You know, one of the things, th- thank you for saying that, because one of the things I don't think people realize is that, in, and with our division, our technical careers division, you know, we are focused on the trainings that provide the, our students with those, what I call um, sustainable wage, very high wage jobs that are financially sustainable and economically mobile. And, and I think about how the, the work that was going on right now, our students are learning how to learn because the technology is going to keep changing. And if our students need to have that foundation where they can say, look, I learned how to do this and I can still learn how to continue to learn. And, and what you're doing there is, is creating that base where they will be able to keep going as the technologies change and we know they're changing rapidly and it's very dynamic. 
We're talking about infrastructure today on Galaxy Forum with Representative Alyssa Slotkin, Michigan's 8th District Congresswoman, and with Kathy Willem, Dean of Technical Careers at Lansing Community College. I think about this, as you described it, Representative Slotkin, transformative influx of funding. So often in the past, it's been such smaller amounts compared to you know what's made possible with this law. Uh, how does that impact how this funding is spent and allocated to have so much money at one time? Yeah. So, you know, I think the, the thing is we're all happy after talking about infrastructure and having, you know, announcing infrastructure week every other week, we finally actually have the money. And we know in Michigan that um, action is better than words. So we now have, you know, this possibility in front of us and it's really incumbent on leaders, local and state leaders, to have some strategic vision on how this money is spent. Because it would be just a real shame if we had this amount of money you know, available and all we did were sort of small tactical projects, not the big rebuilding of a grid or the big rebuilding of a bridge, but just a, a patch job you know, here and there. That would be missing the moment, I think. And I think when you have this amount of money, you have to prioritize and plan and there has to be accountability. And I think that's why, you know, I've been talking to a bunch of different organizations that are going to be in the lead for a lot of these projects. And I'm saying, hey, what kind of uh, checks and balances are you putting in to make sure that the the plan for how this is spent, money is going to be spent and um, the actual execution is is living up to what taxpayers deserve? And I think that to me is the most important thing when I talk to state and local officials is, what are you doing now to prepare for this influx? Tell me your vision. Tell me how it's going to propel your community forward instead of just being the equivalent of a few, you know, patch jobs here and there. So, Dean Willem, uh, to that point about vision, how does LCC partner with industry and how can we help accomplish that? So, you know, there, we, the college doesn't decide what we're going to teach. Industry tells us what we need to do. And with this overall strategic vision that is coming down from, thank you very much, Representative Slotkin, and our state leaders and our local leaders, we will have to work closely with them to ensure that what they need to accomplish this work, we can provide through a talent pipeline. And that is the role of Lansing Community College. That's that's, that's a powerful it. place to be. You know, we have just a couple minutes left, so I want to get one more question in for, for each of you. And uh, thinking of vision, thinking of, of the future a year or 18 months or, or two years from now, knowing that, that it will take you know a bit of time for the funding to be allocated. Um, Representative Slotkin, what do you hope to see in Michigan in the future as a result of this law? Yeah, I want uh, to see our grid upgraded. I want to see um, infrastructure keeping pace with major job announcements like this big GM electric vehicle battery plant that we've just announced, um, where infrastructure is supporting the economic development of the community and keeping pace. I want to see us jump forward to the next you know, century where we have broadband internet from every corner of the state of Michigan, no matter where you're traveling for work, especially a lot of folks, who, a lot of young people who are going to graduate from LCC, they'll be on the road and traveling for work. 
I want them to have broadband everywhere they go, especially up north. Um, and I want to, uh, you know, just have a, uh, a, a, I want to come out of this five years later and say that was the moment where we really got serious about electric vehicles and building the next generation of, you know, cars. And I think one of the things we haven't mentioned, but I think is so important, is that this, you know, the Chinese are investing in their infrastructure at something like seven or 10 times the rate that we have been. And if we want to compete, we want to build that next generation of vehicles, we need to also build the electric vehicle charging stations. You need to be able to drive from Maine to California, from, you know, Kalamazoo to Mackinac City on an, you know, an electric vehicle and in batteries that are timely, that don't take forever to charge. So I want to look back on this period and say that's when we really got serious about kind of competing for that next generation uh, of work uh, and leadership. Dean Willem, what do you hope to see for Lansing Community College in regards to this law? I want to see that we are able to provide, again, that talent pipeline that our industry needs so that they can accomplish these goals that have been laid out. This doesn't happen just because they're, we want to say we want to do this. We need to have the people, and, and Representative Stockton indicated this is exactly, Michiganders are totally on board with this, and we really need to make sure they have the skill sets that they will be needed by the industry in order to do the work that needs to be done. And I firmly believe we're already on that pathway, and I'm excited about the opportunities to continue to be innovative, to grow, and to meet the, the ongoing changing needs. Thank you. Yes. It's incredibly powerful to have this amount of funding and to not only be able to envision, but to, to know that it, it can be a reality, uh, provided all the partners uh, click into place and uh, that... that uh, that folks do learn just how fascinating and important and, and deep infrastructure actually is. This has been such an informative discussion. Thank you, Dean Willem, for joining us You're today. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. And thank you so much, Representative Slotkin. Really appreciate your time. Of course. Happy to be here. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. You can visit lccconnect.org to listen to this show on demand and all the other great LCC Connect programming. Special thanks to our technical producer today, Lane Ingram, and to Andy Callis for composing our theme music. I'm Melissa Kaplan, and this is Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. Connected with LCC Connect at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College's Fresh Start program forgives outstanding student balances, allowing students to re-enroll without penalty. Fresh Start does not apply to student loan creditors. Learn more at lcc.edu slash fresh start. If your walls could talk, what would they say? I have held the same mirror for 13 years. I have been decorated with purple dinosaurs, baseball teams, and football helmets. I have witnessed 33 Thanksgiving dinners and one wedding proposal. I have tiny notches marking the growth of three children. I have caused a learning disability. I am the reason that a fifth grader simply can't sit still. I am responsible for a five-year-old's rage. Just because you can't see lead paint doesn't mean it's not on walls, doors, windows, and sills. 
Today, lead paint poisoning affects over 1 million children. If your home was built before 1978, your family could be at risk. Let's make all kids lead-free kids. Log on to leadfreekids.org or call 800-424-LED. I am the reason a child has trouble hearing. If your walls could talk, what would they say? Brought to you by the Coalition to End Childhood Lead Poisoning, EPA, HUD, and the Ad Council. Lansing Community College students now have the option to go beyond an associate degree through LCC's University Center. The University Center is a partnership between LCC and five four-year universities. Located on LCC's downtown campus, these universities offer junior and senior level courses. To find out more about the University Center, visit lcc.edu. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. It's time for another edition of Equity. Equity is a play on words spelled E Q U I dash T E A. Why? Because I just love sharing knowledge over a good cup of tea. Equity is designed to provide you with tips on issues surrounding diversity, equity, and inclusion to enhance your everyday life. Today's equity topic is entitled Starting the DEI Conversation. Again, starting the DEI Conversation. What does DEI stand for? Just as a reminder, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Oftentimes we're asking, well, how do we get diversity, equity, inclusion inside of a conversation within the workplace? I've got four quick tips to help you along your way. Number one, we first must recognize the difference between equality and equity. When everyone in the workplace gets the same thing or the same shoe, as I like to use the analogy, that's called equality. Equity, on the other hand, is giving everyone a shoe size that matches them personally. That becomes equity. Equitable workspaces are those that demonstrate a commitment to changes in policies, procedures, and even intentional ways of cultural belonging. Number two, in our quest on DEI conversations in the workplace, we must begin by infusing diversity throughout the organization. When diversity is infused throughout any organization, conversations are more easily had. Just think about your department, your unit, whether it's large or small, it has the ability to have more conversations openly when the diversity of perspectives, of ideas and experiences are at hand. Number three, to have DEI conversations in the workplace, we must begin to identify and address implicit bias. Identifying and addressing implicit bias allows us to recognize that certain conversations and certain behaviors are not tolerated. Having a stereotype about a certain group or person, for example, is a type of implicit bias. Each person has different types of experiences that they bring to our workspaces. And so recognizing and celebrating differences is very important. For more information on implicit bias, check out harvard.com. They have an implicit bias test that's free for all, and I'm guaranteeing you'll love it. Number four, and the last tip in our DEI conversation in the workplace. 
we must begin to create spaces for courageous conversations. It has to be an intentional effort on behalf of the organization or workspace that allows teams, that allows individuals to talk about their experiences as well as to listen to other stories. When we do this, conversations in the workplace don't have to be as difficult as they need to be. We're able to share our beliefs, our cultural understanding, linguistic needs, and more. But more importantly, we're able to talk courageously from our authentic selves, which brings about awareness, causing more harmony in the workplace. So I just gave you four tips on starting the DEI conversation in the workplace. Here's a review. Number one, Know the difference between equity and equality. Number two, infuse diversity throughout the organization. Number three, identify and constantly address any forms of implicit bias. And last but not least, number four, create a space for courageous conversations. Now go ahead and grab your favorite cup of tea and take a sip on all of these great tips. This has been another edition of Equa Tea. We'll see you next time. Featuring the faculty, staff, students, and others that help to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. LCC Connect, Mid-Michigan's connection to Lansing Community College. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College has been a proud collaborator of the Lansing Promise Scholarship since 2012. The Lansing Promise Scholarship offers graduating high school seniors who live within the Lansing School District and attend a high school within district boundaries an opportunity to attend LCC. Since its inception, over 1,000 enrolled students have saved over $2 million, earning over 400 degrees and certificates as well as 30,000 credits at LCC. For more information on the Lansing Promise Scholarship, please visit lcc.edu hope. For our troops and their families, the military is more than a career. It's a journey, and every step along the way, the USO is there. It's an experience that that soldier will never forget for the rest of his life. That's what the USO does. From the time they join to the time they transition out of the military, the USO is there, offering programs and support along the way. The USO has tons of programs, how to do a job interview, what to wear, what not to wear, knowing that there was going to be a life after the military. For over 70 years, the USO has continued to meet the needs of our troops and their families, standing with them when it counts. We all got to watch pretty much his last goodbye right before we were notified he was gone. Without the USO, it wouldn't be possible for me and my children to watch Jared tell us that he loves us. These are memories that we'll have forever. Be a part of their journey. Learn more today at USO.org. Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. Transfer students may apply transfer credits towards their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash you belong. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. 
From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. 1996 could be called the year of baseball in Lansing. 1996, the Lansing Lugnuts moved from their previous home in Springfield, Illinois, to Lansing, Michigan. Owners Tom Dixon and Sherry Myers had previously purchased the team, and upon moving the franchise to Lansing and playing their first game on April 5th of 1996, Baseball returned, professional baseball returned to Lansing. Lansing had a long history of the sport of baseball being played here. And on this episode of Land Stories, we're going to look at baseball in Lansing. But we're not going to look at the Lansing Lugnuts. We're going to go way back in time to the very first professional baseball team that played in Lansing. A team that went through several iterations and played in several leagues a team that was known as the Lansing Senators. Baseball has a history that runs parallel to so many other aspects of American culture and American society, and it has its roots as an American sport way back in time before even the American Civil War. And I think one of the reasons why baseball captivates to this day the memory uh, the the uh, historical memory and a lot of the interest in American cultural history is precisely for that reason, because it goes so far back in time. There are very few things left in American society that we encounter very obviously on a day-to-day basis that date back to before the Civil War. But baseball, for people that follow sports, is one such sport. Baseball has a history in and of itself that is very much tied into how the United States developed as a nation, going all the way back again to the decades prior to the Civil War. And by the time you get to the 1880s, the 1890s, baseball is being played as a professional sport all around the United States And by professional sport, what's really meant by that is people are getting paid to do it. They're getting paid to play baseball. The definition typically of a professional compared to, say, an amateur is oftentimes, well, a professional is paid to do something and an amateur necessarily isn't. Professional baseball, therefore, makes its presence known everywhere around the United States by the time you get into the latter part of the 19th century. And Lansing, being a growing city in the Midwest of the United States at the time, itself became the home of a professional baseball team. In 1889, playing in the then-called Michigan State League, a six-team professional baseball league located in the state of Michigan, as the name would suggest, The Lansing Senators play their first game, managed by W.H. Mumby. And that league, the Michigan State League, like a lot of 
early professional baseball leagues in the United States was not a uh, financially solvent league. It had troubles, and as the professional sport of baseball expands, many leagues come and go. The Michigan State League is interesting because it had several iterations to it. It formed in 1889 and played through the 1889 season and into 1890, and then it folded, and then it came back a few years after that and folded again and came back again. All in all, the Michigan State League went through several iterations of formations and reformations and throughout the early part of the 1900s. And the Lansing Senators would be a part of that league for its existence. The other cities that were represented uh, with teams in the Michigan State League included teams in Adrian, Battle Creek, Jackson, Kalamazoo, Owasso, Port Huron, Muskegon, Manistee, Grand Rapids, Greenville, Flint, Saginaw, all around the southern part of Michigan that teams were organized at the professional level and played in this league. So with Lansing, the Senators were playing in a league that was consisting of teams that came from places in southern Michigan, therefore, that were of similar size to Lansing. The 1895 Lansing Senators were one of the more respectable teams that Senators put on the field in the Michigan State League. And 1895 was one of those reiterations of the Michigan State League. It formed in 1889, it folded in 1890, and it came back in 1895. The 1895 Lansing Senators season saw the team go 56 and 36. And one of the more interesting stories on that team is a 47-year-old player who ended with a career batting average of 308 in 465 career games, a gentleman by the name of Bud Fowler. And Bud Fowler was born John W. Jackson in none other than Cooperstown, New York. Cooperstown, New York is the home of the Baseball Hall of Fame nowadays. And there are a few Cities in the United States, few towns in the United States that have more of a nostalgic and historic tie to the history of baseball than Cooperstown because of its location as the Baseball Hall of Fame. And there's an interesting history behind why Cooperstown became the home of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And that actually is a story for another day that, uh, well, if this was a program that looked at the history of New York we would get into, but for now we'll leave it at that and we'll keep our focus for the moment on Bud Fowler. Born John W. Jackson in Cooperstown, Fowler was the first professional baseball player in the United States who is African American. That's right. Uh, Jackie Robinson is known as the player who broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball which happened in the 1940s, but going all the way back to 1878, Fowler made his professional baseball appearance for the first time playing in the International Association. He was, by 1895, the only African-American professional baseball player anywhere in the United States that we know of. He finished his career, as I mentioned, with a career batting average over 300, he hit 308 and played in 465 games. That's quite the career 
for any minor league baseball player. And certainly at that time, when leagues such as the Michigan State League, for example, played somewhere around 100 games a season on average. So he had a career that took him uh, different places in the United States. The 1895 Lansing Senators ended up having uh, several players on the team that had quite the record. And, and Jack Daly was the uh, team leader that year. He hit 397. Uh, had 143 hits and 25 home runs. Now, the year-by-year history of the Lansing Senators is very interesting to consider. And in thinking about professional baseball, though, the cultural aspect of it is, in my mind, uh, every bit as interesting as the year-by-year stats. And, And baseball is a sport that is absolutely obsessed with stats and statistics. Uh, If you do not follow baseball at all, the knowledge of the statistical nature of the sport is nonetheless very obvious if you have any conversation with anybody who follows baseball. If you take a look at baseball scores uh, that are printed, they are full of statistics. And part of the reason for that is because baseball is this unique sport that has a combination of a team organization with the opportunity for individuals themselves to contribute greatly to the team. And baseball, perhaps because of that setup, also is a sport that can have one or two players who are really, really good and have absolutely outstanding statistics playing for a team that is otherwise not so good. And I could name uh, quite a few teams that are in the major leagues right now that would fall under this uh, description. So baseball has always been a sport that has looked heavily upon statistics as a way of trying to explain what's going on. But culturally, Baseball has this incredible, fascinating history that runs parallel with so many aspects of the development of American culture. The way the sport itself was played and looked at, going all the way back to its earliest days, uh, tells us much about American culture, American society, and how that culture and society was developing. So if we go back to the early days of baseball, the years Shortly after the Civil War, the decade of the 1870s and into the decade of the 1880s, when the sport is being organized and starting to be played professionally, the rules of the game are set and an entire culture develops around not only playing the game, but watching it as a spectator that very much mimics or mirrors society as a whole. And in that aspect, baseball is a sport that in some ways becomes a action art form that is played out in front of a increasingly large group of spectators and the players on the field take on roles that in some ways are artistic renditions of roles that are developing in society. So baseball was a sport that was always played in the afternoon. And the duration of a baseball game early on 
was set that it was something that people could have a leisurely afternoon, a break from work, whatever their work entailed, to sit around for a couple hours and watch a game, a game of skill, both athletic skill and mental skill, sort of a combination of the physical and the psychological or emotional acumen that was necessary to successfully navigate this game. And spectators would come out to baseball games in the afternoon, and it was quite an affair. People would dress nicely to go to baseball games. It was seen as a gentleman's sport. And up until even into the 1930s and 40s, uh, one can look at uh, photos taken of professional baseball games, and the crowds are full of people that are dressed in their Sunday best. Uh, Early on, the sport was more heavily attended by men than women, but women have always been uh, an important part of the game of baseball, including uh, professional baseball. There were women leagues that developed side-by-side the earliest uh, professional leagues that men played in. And in that aspect, there's another cultural development that's going on in the United States because in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you have a substantial movement for women's rights in the United States. Ultimately, uh, the biggest right being the right to vote, uh, which was a right that was fought for at the state and then eventually at the national level in the late 1800s and early 1900s. There are other aspects of baseball culture that uh, we can consider as being endemic. And again, kind of an artistic representation of what was going on in American society as a whole. Let's imagine for a moment that it's the year 1885, and we're watching a professional baseball game. And it's a team like the Lansing Senators that are playing. The ballpark is indeed a park. It is a park setting, very similar to city parks that were developing all around the uh, United States at the time. Parks were set up in urban environments during this time period, uh, seen as an essential component of creating a healthy city. American cities were industrializing and growing rapidly at this time period. And that industrialization brought with it a certain crowding that bothered a lot of social reformers at the time. And the development of a workforce that was moving into cities to work in places like factories or offices, which was a great deviation from the overwhelmingly agricultural society and an American economy that was built almost entirely on agriculture uh, before the Civil War. And social reformers, people who were looking at society as a whole, as it's developing into this industrial production society, looked at the movement of people into cities and the uh, rearranging of work out of the outdoors into the indoors and indoor environments such as factories as being something that potentially threatened the health and the overall well-being of society writ large. And so... As an attempt to alleviate this, many city planners start 
building parks at the time period. And there are uh, some of the largest urban parks in the world uh, in existence to this day, actually, in the early 21st century have their roots, uh, their founding, their organization, their layout, their design, their construction into the social reform movement that gave birth to them in the late 1800s. So the setting of baseball games is very much in a park. And to this day, we call baseball stadiums the ballpark. The uniforms that men wore at the time intended to identify the player, of course, but they were also uniforms that would bring a visual representation of order. A visual representation of order because with uniforms, the players could be identified from those who were not playing, and one team could be discerned from another. The umpire. The umpire turns out to be a very important character in our artistic rendering of society, being played out in roles on the baseball diamond. The umpire originally wore a uniform that looked like a police officer's uniform at the time. And the role of the umpire in a baseball game was very much analogous to the role of the police officer on the city street. So imagine you are sitting in a lovely park watching a game take place that involves a great degree of skill, both mental and physical acumen, and it is being overseen by an umpire figure who has the appearance of a police officer. And that is what the original experience of going to a baseball game would have entailed. And baseball as a sport has its rules set during this time period. And in cities like Lansing, all around the United States, professional baseball teams organize and become professional by means of players being paid to play the sport and the revenue to pay those players coming from the fans who were charged to go watch these games. So the professional sport itself has this just fascinating uh, timeline of, of development that goes right along a timeline of development of urbanization and industrialization in the United States. And the Lansing Professional Ball Club, therefore, uh, is right in line with this. And the very first home of professional baseball in Lansing was a park that is not there anymore, it was a place called Capital City Park. It was located on southeast corner of Washington and Elm Streets, uh, just south of downtown Lansing. And that is where the Lansing Senators would play in 1889 and the brief 1890 season that uh, folded uh, before it was even half over. The ballpark was quite small, so we don't have attendance statistics, for example, to tell us how many people would have gone to a Lansing Senators game. Capital City Park wasn't the only place that the Senators played, though. And in fact, there were several um, baseball parks that would come and go in Lansing as the Michigan State League formed and reformed and formed and reformed. 
uh, as discussed in the early part of this program. And the Senators, professional baseball team in Lansing, would therefore move or play at different locations. Capital City Park existed. The next place where professional baseball was played in Lansing was a place called Partial Park. That's spelled P-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. And Partial Park was located right in downtown Lansing. It was a few blocks behind where the Capitol building sits nowadays. And it, uh, it housed the Lansing Senators. It had its own rules. They couldn't play baseball there on Sundays, for example. And it uh, takes its name from the gentleman who owned the Lansing uh, Senators at the time, a gentleman by the name of R.N. Partial. Other places that the Land Senators played included Fairgrounds Driving Park, uh, not actually located where the current Ingham County Fairgrounds are. Uh, Fairgrounds Driving Park was in the neighborhood to the east of downtown Lansing. So if one drives Michigan Avenue or walks Michigan Avenue east about a mile from the state capitol building uh, where it currently stands, that is where Fairgrounds Driving Park was located. It was a neighborhood ballpark and the uh, the story goes that the team was forced to leave because the neighbors didn't like all the commotion that came with uh, people gathering to watch the sport being played. The Lansing Senators also played at League Park, Waverly Park, Community Park, and Municipal Park. And all of these are locations that were scared around uh, different places in the city of Lansing. So the footprint, if you will, of professional baseball in Lansing followed very much what went on in other cities of the size. The game was played in city parks or other open areas that were either purchased outright by the team or leased by the team or the team was given permission in some cases, uh, permission that did not last permanently to play its sport. And this is really very much how uh, the early days of professional baseball worked in the United States. One such location the Lansing Senators played in, a park called Waverly Park, was located where Waverly High School is located nowadays, or very near it, on Snow Road. At the time, that would have been the outskirts of Lansing. And this is one of those really neat connections of past to present that is entirely related to baseball. Waverly High School uh, is the uh, high school that probably the most famous baseball player ever to come from Lansing went to school at, and that would be none other than the Hall of Fame pitcher John Smoltz. John Smoltz went to school at Waverly High School. It's where he graduated from. Uh, from the Lansing area, and John Smoltz would go on to have a Hall of Fame career, uh, most notably as a starting pitcher and then a reliever for the Atlanta Braves. So the name Waverly, Waverly High School, and the location where Waverly High School stands on Snow World has a, an absolutely uh, undeniable and uh, inseparable connection to American pastime of baseball. And that's going to do it for this episode of Land Stories. Uh, be sure and follow our program at lccconnect.org. 
shoot me an email. Send me a message if you uh, heard anything on this program that you would like more information on. And be sure and tune in next time. We are going to continue looking at the history of baseball and its early days in Lansing. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. Featuring the faculty, staff, students, and others that help to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. LCC Connect, mid-Michigan's connection to Lansing Community College. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. On the success scenario, we meet and hear from current LCC students who face adversity, why they chose LCC, and how they turned their situation into a successful one. Definitely now after second semester, my self-confidence is up there. I can do this and I can do this well. Age has nothing to do with it. Like I told you before, I have, the, I have notes from that first meeting and it was, take your age out of it. You deserve to be here. You belong here. I'm Dustin Abrego. The Success Scenario is a program dedicated to inspiring students towards a path of success. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime online at lccconnect.org. Lansing Community College is proud to present We're Better Than That, an anti-bigotry campaign. Embracing diversity is a continuing process, one that requires honesty, cooperation, and meaningful conversations. At Lansing Community College, we understand our journey towards inclusion and equity begins with an examination of how we relate to one another and a pledge to engage in the work necessary for meaningful progress to facilitate conversations and initiatives that will combat racism and hate speech in our college community. The Office of Diversity and Inclusion has partnered with the Office of Police and Public Safety to create We're Better Than That a comprehensive campaign to combat institutional bias and racism. To find out more about We're Better Than That, visit lcc.edu. Laura, that was an amazing meal. The guys really went to town on that leg of lamb. Yeah, thanks, Amy. I'm glad everyone enjoyed it. It's hard to believe how much you and Jim have done with the house in such a short amount of time. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, we love it too. And the kids are really thriving in school here. But... But what? Something's wrong. I know you too well. Jim's company is cutting his salary, and he may even get laid off. He doesn't think we'll be able to afford the mortgage. Oh, Laura. You know what? My cousin Susan and her husband were in a similar situation, but they got some terrific advice for free from a housing counselor from the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling. You need to be careful who you can trust these days with so many so-called mortgage consultants out there. 
The NFCC is nonprofit and has been around for more than 50 years. If you think you're in danger of foreclosure, call the NFCC today at 866-687-6322 or visit mortgagehelpnow.org. That's mortgagehelpnow.org, a public service from the NFCC. Michigan residents age 25 or older may qualify for Michigan Reconnect, a program providing free or reduced tuition to students who have not earned a prior college degree. Reconnect students are responsible for books and fees. Visit lcc.edu slash reconnect for more information. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Bob Myers from the Historical Society of Michigan with a Michigan History Moment. During World War II, families throughout Michigan contributed to the war effort by participating in scrap drives. They collected metal, rubber, paper, and cooking fat to turn into goods that would help win the war. When the United States entered World War II in December 1941, industries demanded all sorts of materials with which to make armaments and to feed and supply soldiers and sailors. The government rationed commodities. Buying meat, sugar, butter, shoes, tires, and other goods required ration stamps. Anyone seeking to buy something without ration stamps heard the exasperated reply, Don't you know there's a war on? When the government called for scrap metal, Michiganders responded. They collected old farm equipment, aluminum pots and pans, and even wrought iron fences and Civil War memorial cannons. Families saved and flattened tin cans. Children scoured their neighborhoods for cast-off metal. The federal government held a rubber drive in June 1942. War production demanded rubber, especially for tires for trucks and airplanes. But Japanese victories early in the war cut off supplies of natural rubber from Southeast Asia. People turned in tires, boots, and floor mats. The government paid a penny for every pound of scrap rubber. In less than a month, Americans turned in 450,000 tons of rubber items. In 1942, paper drives resulted in a glut of scrap paper. But two years later, the nation saw a paper shortage Boy Scouts and school children organized paper drives to collect old newspapers and cardboard. The War Production Board started the Paper Troopers program, designed to sound like paratroopers, to involve school children in the effort. Housewives saved cooking fat for the war effort, too. The government highlighted the use of fats and explosives, but more important uses were in food production, medicines, plastics, and soaps. World War II scrap drives brought in much useful material. Not everything succeeded. Much of the rubber and aluminum, for example, could not be used for their intended purposes. But the most important role of scrap drives may have been in making civilians feel that they too could help win the war. Michiganders could feel that they were all in this together. This Michigan History Moment was brought to you by michiganhistorymagazine.org. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ studio, located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. 
If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.